1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Let's Talk Torah. I am Rabbi Tzvi Jacobson with NRM Streamcast, and we'll spend the next hour talking Torah, learning stuff, and having fun while we do it. If you'd like to contact the show, you can call us at 844 999 9249, or you can always email us at letstalktorah at gmail.com. Lots of things happening this week. Um, You'll be proud to know that I can do a lot of mother stuff. Uh, My wife flew into New Jersey with two of my daughters, getting ready for camp, getting ready for my son's wedding. So I was home with three of the boys, so I had to do laundry. I had to make supper. Okay, barbecued. You know, chicken, hot dogs, cutlets. I I did actually make fireful. If you don't know what fireful is, I don't know how you explain fireful. It's like toasted, um, toasted like grain or oats or something. You know what fireful is? No, you have no idea. Um, But uh, we put, my wife said, put in the margarine and the water and the consomme and stick it in the oven and I can do that. And we cleaned up the house and she came home this morning and the house was fairly clean. So I was good, um, but not a good idea to do it too often. In any case, so now the house is emptying out. I'll fly in with the sun next week, and then we'll really be down to just some little ones. Nice and quiet, even though for some of you, just a couple kids that are young is not quiet, but for us, very, very quiet. Great show today. We are having a return guest. Her name is Deborah Levine. We actually had her on exactly one year ago, at least for the Torah portion. Um, She was actually on show 46, today is 99, so you figure it out, 53-ish shows, so about a year ago. So she has a new book, which actually should have been her first book, we'll talk about that, she'll come in after the first segment. We got to catch up on what happened last week. We ended last week, I was in the middle of a story and I was unable to complete the story, so I got to finish the story. So we're going to finish the story right now. After we finish the story, we'll get into this week's Torah portion, which is also fascinating um, from a side point, And that is since Passover, since um, no the Shavuot holiday, um, Israel and everybody outside of Israel are actually not reading the same Torah portion each week. The land of Israel is actually one Torah portion ahead of everybody else in the world. We're gonna fix that this week. Israel will lane one Torah portion. We will lane two Torah portions, and then the whole world will be back on track. So it was more timely last week, but it's still a, a great story. So let's let's back up. So we talked about last week. It was the anniversary of the moon landing, the Apollo Eleven moon landing was sometime last week. Was the fiftieth anniversary? All kinds of stuff. People were talking about astronauts and who knows what. So, um, so the story goes back actually about six months before the moon landing. And as I was telling you, there was a Jewish broadcaster, either WABC, maybe it was WOR, one of those big New York radio stations. His name was Barry Farber. So Barry Farber had a rabbi on his show one time. His name was Rabbi Posner. I believe he Rabbi Zalman Posner. And this uh, Barry Farber asked the following question he says i don't understand the torah the laws the torah is very strict and if a person for example eats a ham sandwich or a jewish person eats a ham sandwich he's getting (coughs) 39 lashes really in this story he said 38 lashes but we'll give him a break on that one it's actually 39 but we'll pretend he said the right number he says "So, so barbaric and how could the torah do that so this rabbi posner answered him he said look he said, the idea of lashes is almost far-fetched. Why? First of all, you need witnesses. After you have the witnesses, who they have to warn the person who's committing the crime. And they have to tell him that if he commits the crime, he's going to get the following punishment of lashes. And then the person has to say, I understand, and I don't care. Then they have to bring the guy to court. Then it's going to be a high court of rabbis that have a very special uh, what we call smicha and or that that, that they know everything. And that level of smicha, I don't have a good English translation for it. Um, Ordination, I believe the best word is, um, which ended a little bit after the destruction of the temple. And they're going to harass the witnesses and check them this way, that way, try to disprove them, try to see that they made a mistake. It was not something that happened often. That was his basic answer. Um, Anyways, A few days later, um, the Lubavitcher Rebbe had uh, made a a group together, a group of people on a Saturday night that wasn't uh, scheduled, and he must have either heard about the show or had been listening to the show. Either way, I don't know, but um, he said... He said how this Barry Farbert asked the question, and this Rabbi Posner answered, but he said, you really missed the boat on the answer. I'm going to give you the real answer. And here comes the real answer, and it really ties in beautiful with the Apollo uh, moon landing. And he said, uh, you know, the, the what happened was that it was in December, so right around that time, um, the Americans had a different Apollo launch that actually circled the moon a bunch of times just as the, as the uh, precursor for the actual moon landing. So, again, it was the buzz 50 years ago about, um, I don't mean Buzz Aldrich, but it was the buzz back then about what was going on and the moon landing. So, the the driver the said like this. He said, Let, let's, let's look at the whole picture of this, of this rocket launch. There have been, in the last 10 years, approximately 400,000 people working for NASA, working to make this moon launch happen. $24 billion, which was 50 years ago we're talking, right? Who knows what it would cost you today, right? $240 billion, I don't know. So, who, so $24 billion was spent on, this, on all the preparations and the salaries and the costs and the rockets and the fuel and, and everything put together. And you can imagine these astronauts that are going into the rocket and they're going to be, you know, hurtling towards the moon are given a lot of information, right? In other words, what you can eat, what you can't eat, how you're going to sit if you need to stand, even how you're going to go to the bathroom, where you can move, what you can touch, what you can do as a probably an entire book that they had all memorized, you know, every single how they're sitting, where they're sitting, the whole business is was in a, a very exact science to make it safe, to make sure that the the launch was a success. Just imagine for a second, they're hurtling towards the moon, they're off the Earth, they're on their way, and one of the astronauts says, you know, I would really like a cigarette, which sounds a little ludicrous because you could blow up the whole ship. Certainly, that was one of the things they weren't doing. And... uh and imagine the astronaut said, Come on, you, you can't have a cigarette now. You should mind your own business. Like, what are you going to do to me? So, what are we going to do? They could throw you in jail. They could, who knows what, treason. They could throw the book at you for a cigarette. It's not such a big deal, a cigarette. You can't throw the book at me because I smoked a cigarette. So, again, everybody understands that's ridiculous because in this situation, because of um, all these people and all this time and and everything's been 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 worked on. You've been warned that, what, that if you don't file directions, you are you are going to just change and ruin what everybody's put in. We can all understand. He deserves a very large punishment because of the effect of what he's done. So he says, you know, we we don't understand. You know God's plans we don't understand what it what God put into the world and creating the world and the rules and regulations for the world if we saw the whole picture and all and all the effort that God puts in to make everything run smoothly you wouldn't have a problem understanding why there's 39 lashes when somebody does something wrong the problem is we just see our little selves plopped into the seat we're in and we don't get the whole story So, that was the answer he gave, why we're not understanding why there could be a great punishment for something that, that to us, seems uh, not so important, and that's the answer he gave. It's a beautiful answer. It was more timely last week, but I felt so bad I didn't have a chance to tell you. I said, I got to get that in this week. Okay. So, that's really still last week. Now, we got to start this week's Torah portion. So, in this week's Torah portion, there's really two Torah portions. Um... There's a lot of things happening. And again, we got to first you know, go back, dial it back a little bit to last week, the end of last week's Torah portion. So, Bilam had been hired to curse the Jewish people. God did not allow Bilam to curse the Jewish people, and Balak, the king of Moab, was quite upset about it. And uh, he sends him home. On the way home, Bilam, probably with advisors from Midian, it was really a combination, Moab and Midian, two old cultures, which for the most part don't exist nowadays. And he suggested if you want to get God angry, so it's not working for me to curse the Jewish people. Not working. If you want to get God angry, the Jewish God hates promiscuity. He doesn't like that there should be prostitutes running around all over the place. So if you get yourself a bunch of prostitutes, you get them to hang out near the Jewish people, you get them to get involved in prostitution, and God will be angry, and he'll kill a bunch of Jews, you don't gotta do a thing. Sure enough, there must have been tens of thousands of these Midyani prostitutes, and they got all, many, at least 24,000, because that's how many were killed, involved, and there were 24,000 people killed. That's where Pinchas comes along, and Penrith kills the leader of the tribe of Shimon and a princess from Midian. And once that's all done, the plague ends. Okay, now that the plague is over, um, we're now moving along. The, this country Midian, this nation Midian, has to be punished for what they did. They can't just get away with uh, with starting up with the Jewish people, causing all these Jewish people to die, and think you get away scot-free. It doesn't work that way. So, interesting enough, Pinchas will be the general. They will take 1,000 soldiers from each tribe. See, that's about a very big army. And uh, these 12,000 soldiers being led by Pinchas will lead the charge. They will go and wipe out this country of Midian. Now, as another aside, something very important to think about. Um, The language of the verse says, the God says to Moses, go make a war with Midian, go take revenge on what they did to the Jewish people, and afterwards, you're going to die. So I don't know how all of you are that work in offices, but imagine your boss comes to you and says, look, I got one last very, very important project. You've worked for me for a long time. But when this project is over, you are retired. So, I, I don't know, do, do you dive in head first and try to finish up, you know, in a week, in three days, or you take your time, check it out, make sure you're doing everything properly, make sure everything is set up the way it's supposed to be? How do you go about being told that as soon as you finish this last project, you are retired or you're fired, if that word um, works better for you? Like, how would you work? You know, I know it happened to my mother one time. Um, That probably happens to a lot of people. Okay, uh, Mrs. So-and-so, or Mr. So-and-so, or Dr. So-and-so, we would like you to train in this person to be able to do your job, and then you're fired. Like, I don't know how well you do the job, I don't know how fast you want to do the job, but in this case, Moses reacts immediately. He's what we call a zariz or zrisus. He has an alacrity. He knows this is what God wants. Who cares that his job is now over? God gave me a job. I am going to do the job as quickly as possible. Doesn't mean I have to run full speed ahead and run into a wall. That's not what we're talking about. We talk about alacrity. But no delay. I'm going to work on it. I'm going to get it done immediately. Because that's what God wants. If I know what God wants, what am I delaying for? The delaying is not helping anybody. The delaying is not accomplishing anything. And me living longer is not accomplishing anything because my goal in living is to serve God, not to try to figure out a way that I could live a few weeks longer. What would be the point in that? At least for someone like Moses, not how the rest of us think. So Moses gets the group together. He sends them out. They wipe out Midian, and they bring back spoils. Now, interesting enough... They brought back a lot of women. They brought back a lot of the prostitutes that had been in the that had caused the whole problem in the first place. When Mo, when they come marching back, so Moses and the high priest Lazar, because Aaron is no longer alive, so now it's the son. They go out to greet them. Moses sees all these women captives, and the whole reason we went to war was because of these prostitutes. So Moses is incensed. There's a few times in the Torah that Moses gets angry. Moses gets very angry. And what's interesting is as soon as he gets angry, he forgets the law. In other words, they need to know how to purify themselves. What has to be purified? What doesn't have to be purified? How to make things kosher? If there was, if there was non-kosher meat in certain vessels, how do you get the taste of that meat out of those vessels? Like, what are you supposed to do? So, but because Moses got angry, he completely forgot a law, and therefore the Torah says that Moses told a lazer to teach the people what the rules are. That's what he was told to do, which is really amazing. You know, I have a, somebody coming up in two weeks from now, we're going to talk about anger. And he says there's a place for anger. Um, we'll see if we differ with him or not. But in any case, um, there's no question that we find by Moses, and I guess you find it, you know... We all find it. if you get really angry, all of a sudden you start acting not normal. You you don't act the way you're supposed to act. You forget. You forget where you are. You forget who you are. You don't react properly. And you, you can make people crazy. So Moses becomes angry and he completely forgets what he's supposed to be doing. He forgets. He forgets what he's supposed to be teaching. So it's, it happens to be a good lesson. Now, you need to know that when somebody gets angry or when you yourself get angry, don't think that there's no repercussions. The first repercussion is your brain is no longer working properly. Um, we talked about it by the Egyptians. When the Egyptians would hit the frog um, by the plagues and the frog would double and the Egyptians got mad, and they kept hitting the frog. So the question is you're bringing the plague onto yourself. You are the cause of all your problems, right? If you, the Egyptians, would stop... Um, hitting the frogs, they'd stop multiplying and there'd be a couple million frogs, but there wouldn't be, who knows, hundreds of millions, billions, who knows what. But again, it's, it's the same concept. When somebody gets angry, his brain stops working and they could do silly or ridiculous things. That's one of the things that can happen with anger and it's in our family life. You get angry at your wife, you get angry at your kids, you're not thinking anymore. If you see you're getting angry, at a spouse, at, a, at children, at students. You really got to take a break. You got to step back and say, my brain is not working. I cannot talk to you right now. Let me calm down. Let me relax. And I'll figure out exactly um, what I should be thinking when my brain is working properly. That's what happens when a person gets angry. And here comes my music. And I barely touched the surface. But when we come back, we are going to be joined by Deborah Levine, author of the the Magic Marble Tree. So she'll be joining us right after the break. Hold through the break. Listen to see you on Let's Talk Torah, and we'll be right back.
2: Welcome back to Pop That Culture. That's the horror movie. (laughs) Bury the phone in the Bat Cemetery. It's got a cord. (laughs) I'm Ben Rose for the Motor City Juke Joint. I'll have interviews with musicians and a playlist curated by me just for you. Hello, folks. Welcome to the Greg Russell Movie Show. When I have a couple cocktails, everything's funnier.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I still just love that line. Producer, director, how did this whole thing come about for you?
1: Hey, how are you? I'm Gerald Valley, and I want to invite you to listen, watch, share my new show, The Drop In. It is going to cover skate, music, culture, actually, all sports. I have some great guests lined up, and it's to inspire and motivate people to make the most of this life we have. Check out the inspiration, the stoke, and the life of The
2: Drop In with Gerald Valley. Detroit. It's the home of some of the world's most talented artists. It's where techno and Motown were born. It's a city where you can experience raw, untamed rock and roll. I'm Ben Rose, and I'm inviting you to join me weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 for the Motor City Juke Joint. I'll have interviews with musicians, info on what's going on around town, and a playlist curated by me just for you. tree
1: of life I just pick me plum and we're a back character. and I'm not sure if we're having technical difficulties. my guest tried to call me um, while we were having the show. I obviously can't speak to her or pick up my phone I mean I could but I'm not gonna pick up the phone while we're while we're talking so um, therefore, I think they spoke to her on my phone, and now they're going to call again. I guess the Skype is not working, so we'll be joined by Deborah, hopefully, momentarily. So I'm going to talk a little bit more about what's happening in the Torah portion, and then as soon as I get interrupted, um, then we'll talk to Deborah. So so Moses gets angry, So, so... Eliezer has to teach the Jewish people the laws of purity and other stuff. Moses also has all those women executed. He says these are the ones that caused all the the sinning in the first place. They can't be allowed to live, but the very little girls could be kept as slaves. They collected a tremendous amount. And very interesting, um, the soldiers that went to war were not able to keep all the spoils. It was interesting. It it seems half the spoils— were kept by the soldiers, and the other half was sort of divvied up amongst the other tribes. Now, one of the things we find, one of the things we find is, um, is they, they, they collected a lot of sheep and cattle and it seems specifically, okay, it seems we, they collected a lot of sheep and cattle which was going to lead to the tribes of Ruvain and God um, I'm um, having so much. I want to say, out of the land of Israel, we're going to talk about that soon. But now I know we're joined by Deborah, um, author of thirteen books, most recently *The Magic Marble Tree*, founder and editor of the *American Diversity Report*, and LinkedIn Superwoman. Um, Deborah, are you there? I am here. <laughs> okay. Sorry for the confusion. I have no idea what happened. That's why I sit on this side of the microphone, and I couldn't pick up your phone because the show had already started. But you laughed. Uh-huh. You laughed. I um, mo- Are you there, Deborah? I am here. I am so sorry for the confusion, but let's go forward. Here we go. But I got a chuckle out of you. I know this has nothing to do with what I want to talk about. What is a LinkedIn <laughs> superwoman?
3: Oh, uh, there was a, 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 a drive for women to become these superwomen on LinkedIn, and someone nominated me, and there you have it. Ah.
1: Uh. So exciting. (laughs) So amazing. So, actually, I thought it was pretty fascinating. We actually spoke approximately a year ago. Not a year ago to the the day, but it happens to be, when I look back in my notes, it was show 46. And today is 99, interesting enough. No, 98. It's 98, 99. I have no idea. We'll find out when I look later. (laughs) But but in either case, um, it was the same Torah portion. In other words, so this week happens to be a double portion called Matos and Maseh. And when we spoke on your last book, The Liberator's Daughter, um, said it happened to be the Torah portion of Matos. I thought that was pretty interesting. So um, before we even get into the book, um, we talked about a book that you wrote about your father and his, and his war experiences in World War II. And, uh, and now you've written another book called The Magic... Marble Tree, which really probably should have been written first, but um, (laughs) before we even go there, um, why did you call your book The Magic Marble Tree?
3: You know, I was never going to write this book in the first place, or even in the second place. It came about because people wanted to know more about my personal story and uh, after The Liberator's Daughter, and I finally gave in and said, okay, I'll write about this, but I don't know how to start it. And a friend of mine said, well, start somewhere. And so I did, and I started telling her the story about being in Bermuda growing up and uh, being in the front yard of a house which was called Shadow Lawn, and playing with the marbles that I loved, cat's eye marbles. And my brother comes out and he says, you know, if you plant that marble in the garden, it's gonna grow into a magic marble tree and you'll have all the marbles you'll ever want. I go, that's pretty cool. So I did. But and behold, there were never any trees coming up. And I finally, I said to my brother, Joe, what happened is nothing there." And he says, well, I can't believe you fell for that. And I was so upset. I told our dog, Woofie, who was just standing around watching him. Come on, Woofy, we're going to go flying. And off we went, and Joe yelled, dogs can't fly. And I said, yes, they can. So I started the book knowing that somewhere there's going to be a magic marble tree, and I'm going to fly.
1: Yeah, you know, we'll talk about certain parts of the book. You did try to fly a few times. That didn't go so well. (laughs) But uh, (laughs) uh, we'll we'll try to get there. Um, It is really an amazing book. Like many books, you. um, you have to get into the book a little bit to get a feeling for Deborah's life what she went through, how she worked through adversity, and that's really, really what I want to talk about. And I really believe, I understand why you don't want to write the book, because it took a lot of courage to write this book. Where would you find the courage to write this book?
3: I never thought I'd write this book until I was, like, on my deathbed. Uh, But I was convinced that my journey, the things I've overcome and how I've done it, actually has some value for other people. It's not just an expression of my own journey. And it has. It's healing.
1: I think it is healing. Not only is it healing for you, but hopefully, when people read your book, um, they'll learn that uh, there's really nothing that should stop anybody from moving on with life. So, let's let's, uh, dive into it. We'll try to go through different stages in history Obviously, you grew up in uh, Bermuda at one point, and Mm -hmm. uh, you loved to dance. Dancing was your thing. And even at a young age, when dancing became your thing, uh, something got in the way. What happened?
3: Yes, dancing was something I always wanted, and uh, the first time that it was taken away from me was my own fault. That's when I tried to fly off a slide and fell and broke my leg. And that put an end, dancing for a bit. Yes, indeed.
1: <laughs> and just, and I was aside just because it's a cute story, just people should get to know your personality just a little bit. Um, there was like <laughs> a tree, there's a swing or something on a tree, and the, and the oh. workmen were cutting down trees, I guess. Uh, oh, that one. hmm Yes. Uh, and
3: I was very upset with them, and so uh, I, I, I had to stop them. When I was like five years old, I stood in front of a tree and um, apparently there was a lot of yelling, and my mom looked out the window. Later, she said, You haven't lived till you've seen a five year old hold hold off a half a dozen lumberjacks.
1: <laughs> I actually wish I could have seen it. That would have been certainly <laughs> very entertaining. But Bermuda was not where you were going to. You know stick around forever um and yes. you you moved up to long Island and
3: it's
1: yes, a great yes. Nick. Why do I think there's two parts to where you moved to Long Island? but that's okay, I am remembering yes. so you moved up to Long Island, you went to school um you uh, you school was not so easy for you. um I actually think you said you were bullied in school uh,
3: yes, I was, and uh, part of it was because I sounded so British. Uh, And different Uh, and uh, so that makes you a a pretty good target for bullying Uh, and uh, this uh, one little boy and his friends uh, kind of waylaid me and uh, and hurt me dragged me around a parking lot and uh, I had to run home and my knees were skinned and I was crying it was hard
1: so what did you do to, to, what did you find that you could work through to, I guess, ignore those guys?
3: I, it, it's amazing that bullying gives you uh, fear. Uh, that is both horrible and life-saving. <laughs> if you can run, I could run really fast. <laughs> uh, but uh, one of the things that happened is my older brother, uh, Joe uh, intervened and uh, cornered the kid, brought him back home, and made him apologize. And so I have a great a great uh, thank you to give my brother for protecting me. And when people protect others, um, it makes it a little easier to keep going.
1: So, did you get back into dancing already then, or not till you got into high school?
3: No, I I started dancing uh, again uh, in, um, oh, I would say it was like fourth grade and I went to ballet classes and got my little pink ballet slippers going because the ability to dance and move to music was something that was so healing and it was such a passion that... Uh, my parents were, even though I had very little money, were set on giving me those lessons. And because we were in New York, uh, my mom took me took me down to Radio City Music Hall to show me real live dancing. And that made everything so much more beautiful in America.
1: Now, was it at this point already that you had uh, one of your first... Uh issues that you could no longer dance, or that didn't happen until high school?
3: Uh, no, I broke my leg in, uh, in uh, elementary school.
1: So, and so that was
3: the first time that I had to uh, cease and desist. Uh, but I went back to it in high school. Uh, I had, fortunately, uh, I was able to pick up the violin and play in those years that I didn't dance. And music was very healing, also, but it wasn't the same. I went back to ballet in high school, and uh, became um, the artistic director of the high school dance company.
1: Yeah. So now that was, I think, into when you were when you were a junior, right? Uh, That was actually my
3: senior year. I was dancing as a junior. And that was when, and I think this is what you were interested in... Right, this is what I wanted uh, to talk had, about. Yeah, I had a, a something happen, and my knees gave, gave out on me. I couldn't dance anymore. And I, I wasn't sure what was wrong, neither were the doctors. Uh, but it wasn't going to happen. I wasn't going to be a part of our performance at the World's Fair, as we had planned. Uh, and I really... Yeah, I almost withdrew from the dance company, but the dance teacher told me, "No, you have other skills. Become the artistic director and choreographer, stage manager." I said, "I don't know anything about it." She said, "You'll learn," and I did.
1: Well, wow, that's amazing. So, um, how long? And was what? When, once you had the problem with your knees that you couldn't get up and get around, this was just something. Um, physical, this was, this was something the doctors were looking for. They couldn't find anything wrong with you. This was psychological. Do, did you even know what it was? Did anyone know what it was?
3: Well, they gave me a couple of ideas. They said maybe it's arthritis. Uh, they gave me some medication, um, steroids. No, nothing worked. My guess is that uh, it was the beginnings of... Uh, fibromyalgia, uh, and it was going to be, it was a wake-up call that I
1: would be dealing with pain all my life. How, I mean, this, I was wondering as I'm reading the book, as a, as a young girl who loves mm-hmm. to dance um, mm-hmm. and your legs are everything if you need to dance, how frustrating is it that the thing you love most was just ripped away from you?
3: was it was more than frustrating. It, it was like a, a kind of death, you know, and I mourned for my life that I had. And there was no way to know if I would get use of my leg back uh, or when. Uh, there was a suggestion that I not even go away to college, to Harvard, because who knows what was going to happen to me. And I made a decision. You know, I'm going, uh, and if I drop dead in the middle of Harvard Square, so be it. But I'm not going
1: to just lie here and take this. So, however long you were, I guess, in bed till you were able to get out of bed, till you had to walk again, you weren't able to walk. You just couldn't dance, or even that. I'm wrong. Uh
3: Well, it was actually difficult to walk. It had to be very slow. I was given the, the uh, permission to use the elevator in the school because I couldn't go upstairs and downstairs. So uh, there were some very basic things that I couldn't do.
1: Okay, so before we get to college, um, besides... That In the arts and in dance, you're obviously very talented, and and you if you can't dance, you're going to help others dance. Um, you're also a pretty good writer, and you actually um, had a, a, I guess, a flair for writing, and I think it got you in trouble sometimes.
3: <laughs> yes, indeed. Well, I was a very sweet uh, British colonial-type young lady, very um uh, and- engaged in being polite and correct, Uh, so writing gave me the one outlet in which I could say whatever I pleased. Uh, That often came as a shock to my teachers, uh, and there were some repercussions to that.
1: (laughs) Sounds funny. A teacher asks you to write something, and you just write it the way you see it, then that could be very Mm -hmm. sharp but um, (laughs) I think, I can't remember, I I wrote down the line, I can't remember where I wrote it, I'm not seeing it on my paper, but something to the effect that a teacher asked you of the five things, if you could have five things, what would they be? And most people would pick, I don't know, a house, a car, a pool. Uh, But you were much more philosophical than that.
3: Yes, that's correct. I picked things like wisdom and kindness. Uh, and those were the things that mattered to me, and that was kind of a shock. It turns out that I was absent the day she passed out those uh, uh, papers, and I wasn't there, and she wanted to know who wrote this, because it was actually anonymous. Uh, and um, later, my friend Judy came up to me and said, I know it was you, and I said, yes, indeed. <laughs> it was. Um, and it's been something, of course, that I've
1: pursued ever since. Yes, that is for sure. You do a lot of writing with with the Diversity Report and other things you've been doing, if we were trying, if we get there. I'm not sure if I skipped one other thing I just thought it was important to point out. Um, you weren't only involved in the dance class in school, but you were also involved in teaching children um, from... Uh, from uh, inner city neighborhoods also about dance? Did that happen did I skip that part or that didn't happen yet?
3: No that was in high school that was in high school before uh, I had my crash and burn I was approached uh, by some of my uh, classmates to join them in a project uh, in the uh, next door town which was primarily African American and Definitely uh, uh, struggling with poverty issues if I would go in there and teach ballet. And uh, that was my pleasure to do. Amazing. And so uh, when I started teaching, uh, I must have been 16.
1: Wow, wow. Already at a young age, being involved with everyone. Amazing. So you did go to Harvard. <laughs> And, uh, and of course, like every student going to college, you made sure to follow the straight and narrow, and you, you followed the course exactly the way they wanted, right? <laughs> Not really. Not really.
3: <laughs> Not at all, it's like <laughs> fine. Well, I didn't really know that a freshman couldn't... Simply go walk over to Harvard Divinity School and register for classes. So I did, and I ended up in those classes. And it wasn't until the final exam when I went to talk to the teacher about, you know, maybe I needed a little help with uh, uh, deciding on a, uh, on a topic for the essay that I was. It was discovered that I was there, and I thought he heard himself laughing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: Yeah, that's Deborah! So, um, (laughs) were you able to dance when you got, at some point, back in Harvard? Were you able to get back into dancing, or you you still were not well enough to do any dancing?
3: Unfortunately, I was not. I I may have tried to take a a, a little bit of of classes, uh, but in reality, um, I... eight. I struggled physically through the first two years, and then it caught up with me again, and I had to take a year off.
1: Right. So, even as whatever this disease, whatever it was that was affecting your body and certainly putting you in pain, um, you actually had to drop out of college, or at least to going to Harvard.
3: Yes. Yes. Well, I dropped out of Harvard uh, between uh, my uh, uh, um, sophomore and junior year. Uh, And uh, then went back for my junior year and was not able to finish it and completed my college degree living at home and going to uh, NYU, New York University in Greenwich Village in the 60s.
1: Oh, a good place for a dancer and a violinist, the perfect place, except (laughs) that... uh,
3: It was wild. (laughs) Yeah, dancing wasn't working.
1: So you ended up going out. Your family moved to Cincinnati? Yes, to Cincinnati. uh, And my father uh, became an executive
3: with federated department stores, and we moved out there. Uh, At the time I had gotten my degree, I was... Working as a gal Friday in the garment district in New York City, uh, which is a whole other story, and uh, I didn't, I didn't have the money to stay there by myself, so I moved with the family.
1: Yeah, I always found that interesting that a, uh, a a girl who goes to Harvard goes to NYU, and the best job she can get coming out of college is she's a gal Friday, and it, I don't think it was much better when you got to Cincinnati. Um, but when you got back to Cincinnati, did you again become well enough to get back into dancing?
3: Not at first. Uh, I, I had some serious issues uh, in, in Cincinnati and ended up in bed for months, unfortunately. Uh, and when I, when I got out of bed, um, I decided <sighs> we only live once, so... Uh, I actually went back to graduate school and started a degree in urban planning. And um, while I was not able to finish it because of my health, it did qualify me to get a job running a nonprofit uh, on campus. And that meant that I had some, some money. Um, it would be uh, a while when... I had to stop working nine to five, but I decided to be an entrepreneur and open up my own dance studio.
1: Amazing! And one, there was not only did you have your own dance studio, but you had special students that you taught, if I recall correctly.
3: Yes, yes, I, I have this passion to help others with disabilities. So I got some. I got a grant from the City of Cincinnati to teach. Uh, at a school for the deaf, St. Rita's School for the Deaf, and I also taught at a school for the blind, and I taught them dance also. And I created manuals for teaching these people, uh, as it was, I wasn't considering myself a writer just yet, but the passion for writing down everything and documenting it was already there.
1: Wow, amazing. Again, we're speaking to Deborah Levine, author—well, she's been an author many times, but now we're talking about her book, The Magic Marble Tree, and we're talking about dance, and we're talking about how Deborah used dance to uh, keep fighting through whatever was affecting and afflicting her body that didn't let her dance, and it would go away for a little bit, then come back and go away and come back. And you kept going back to dance, which is really amazing that you didn't give up, which is not you.
3: No giving up. You know, I, what I did is I said, okay, take a half hour to give up, be depressed, say, we're doomed, and then move on.
1: And it worked. <laughs> it's amazing. And hopefully everyone can also learn the same thing. Um, did the doctors ever figure out what it was?
3: As time went on, um, there were some incidents that did reveal parts of it. Uh, for example, as I was an executive director for a nonprofit I was one uh, of a Jewish Federation and uh, over in Uzbekistan for a mission and got terribly ill when I came home I went through all kinds of tests and they found a lot of genetic issues uh, uh, that had uh, been percolating for years uh, and uh, one of them was that I was a celiac uh, that I would have to change the way I ate completely but that a lot of the damage was already done.
1: Wow, amazing! It's a, it's it's so it's amazing that, that what have they didn't have the medical science the know how to realize um, all the things that were happening with you until you know just all those many years later. Was that the problem, or the doctors were were incompetent?
3: I think part of the problem is that that the the, the issue started to surface so early that the medical profession uh, did not have the ability to look at it properly, and it didn't occur to them what was going on, especially uh, as there there were additional genetic issues having to do with my parathyroid gland that I didn't even know was a thing uh, and wasn't caught until uh, quite uh, recently, uh, and that um required surgery, required a whole different way of life uh, to deal with that. I, can, I can't imagine how, frankly, I went through all of that when I was younger and had no clue as to what was happening and had to deal with it by myself.
1: It's amazing. It really, your your life story, and I'm so happy that you wrote the book. I so hope people will learn from you. I have about, I can give you about 30 seconds, Deborah, for two things. I would like you to yeah. leave us with a message, and I would like you to tell us how to get your book. All right.
3: Uh, the book is on Amazon, The Magic Marble Tree, and the message is never give up, never give up, never give up.
1: Deborah you're amazing. You're amazing, not just a LinkedIn superwoman, a real superwoman. I so appreciate you keeping in touch and sending me the book and letting me read the book and sharing um, your life with us and uh, your, what you went through and how you fought through it. Thank you again, and I'm sure we'll be in touch. Be well.
3: Thank you. We'll definitely try
1: that one. <laughs> Bye-bye. Oh, okay, bye. Well, a great book to read. Not such a long book. I mean, I read it on Kindle, so I can't tell you how many pages it really is. Not such a long book, but really... a a, a fascinating just how she dealt with a lot of issues that I think most of us would just uh, roll over roll into a ball and give up on life she definitely did not give up on life and I hope we learned a lot from that So, and here comes my music and we only got time for one segment hopefully we'll be joined by Bionis and Goldson after the break you're listening to Rabbi Tzu on Let's Talk Torah and we'll be right back
2: Why are we here? What makes a person truly good? For those answers, you're going to have to take a philosophy class. But if you're more interested in who would win in a fight between R2-D2 and a Dalek, watch Get It to the Geeks. Detroit. It's the home of some of the world's most talented artists. It's where techno and Motown were born. It's a city where you can experience raw, untamed rock and roll. I'm Ben Rose, and I'm inviting you to join me weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 for the Motor City Juke Joint. I'll have interviews with musicians, info on what's going on around town, and a playlist curated by me just for you.
1: Welcome back to Pop That Culture. That's the horror movie. <laughs> yeah. Bury the phone in the fat cemetery. It's got a cord.
2: <laughs> I'm Ben Rose for the Motor City Juke Joint. I'll have interviews with musicians and a playlist curated by me just for you. Hello, folks. Welcome to the Greg Russell Movie Show. When I have a couple cocktails, everything's funnier. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I still just love that line. Yeah. Producer, director, how did this whole thing come about for you?
1: Jens Goldson of Ethical Imperatives, Jenssen, how are you today?
0: I am wonderful. I back from the Rocky Mountains, where I saw God's handiwork right before my my, my eyes.
1: Amazing. Before I let you start, um, I I did tell you we talked about it last week. Um, you gave a TED talk. If I'm pronouncing it right, a TED talk out in Colorado. It was That's right. You know. We interviewed, but, you know, you crystallized your story. Fantastic. If somebody wants to watch that TED Talk, how do they see it?
0: Um, well, they can find it on uh, YouTube on the TEDx site, or they could just go to my website, which is my name, jonesongoldson.com, and
1: they can find the link there. All right, so I encourage anybody who's listening, or even not listening, um, you, should, you should listen to that TED Talk. I think it was 11 or 12 minutes. Um, it was fantastic. Fantastic. I, I enjoyed it. I was uplifted. It was a great story. Uh, but, as always, my time is ticking, so, Yonison, go for it.
0: Okay. Well, as usual, the presidential primary debates give us plenty to talk about. Uh, but there's one topic that emerges every year, and this year is no exception. Should candidates for either party's nomination go on the attack against competitors in their own party? The conventional wisdom says no, that the damage inflicted on the winner will make him or her more vulnerable in the general election. But that philosophy has little effect on the candidate's behaviors as they go for blood at every opportunity. They're not thinking ahead till next summer, they're thinking about now. In this week's Torah portion, the tribes of God and Ruvain asked for land on the east side of the Jordan River. They reasoned that as the Jewish nation expanded, the people would need more livestock to feed them than the land could support. They thought they were planning for the future, but in reality they were being short-sighted. Their mistake was failing to recognize the spiritual benefits of living in the land of Israel. God had promised that the land would sustain them and that hidden miracles would provide for them as long as they trusted God and remained true to his will. Of course, we have to make short-term plans, which means that we have to deal with the realities before us, but we also have to make sure that our short-term plans don't contradict our long-term goals, and that requires us to balance the material and the spiritual in every aspect of our lives. And with that, I wish you a very good Shabbos.
1: Yes, and thank you, as always. And again, I encourage everyone to check out the TED Talks. Have a good Shabbos. Be well. Good Shabbos. Bye-bye. All right. Now, actually, at this time, we always bring up my poster. I'm up to poster number 12. But Kelsey is not behind the glass to tell me. But Angel is. And Angel's giving me the thumbs up, so right behind me. Is our latest letter, and we hope Kelsey is enjoying vacation. I did not know on her contract she was allowed to take vacations, but clearly she is. But here we go. Anyways, the letter Lamed is the largest letter in the Jewish alphabet. It's a very tall letter, it's a very wide letter. And I, I you know I found an interesting word. This I don't believe this is a a biblical word. I believe it's a more modern Hebrew word, but it's such a great word. The word is a lehitraot which people say when they say goodbye to somebody in Israel, they'll use the word lehitraot, lehitraot, lehitraot. It's a great word. I don't really think it means goodbye. I think it's translated as goodbye. I actually think it means uh, be well, which is what I seem to say all the time when I say goodbye to people. So if I would be broadcasting in Israel, I'd say lehitraot every time I finish talking to somebody. Instead, I say, be well. It's not just goodbye. I sort of want to leave you with a blessing when you're on your way out. And I say, have a good day. So that was my letter this week. And my son um, told me a story the other night, which I then told my class. And I said, it's hot off the presses. And they said, "Eh, our rabbi two years ago told us that story. So it's not such a new story, but it happens to be a great story. So I believe the story takes place in Israel. Um almost at this time of the year, about a month later when you get to a couple weeks before the high holidays. So there are prayers that are said called slichot, like to ask for forgiveness. And those are said um, before the prayers. Generally, you got to wake up a little earlier. It takes about 15, 20 minutes. And those are said a week or two before the high holidays. So there's a group of Gerich Sidon that wanted to go with their rabbi, with their rabbi, and they wanted to go pray with him that morning. So most of them, like, it happens in Israel, get on the bus. Most people don't have cars. It's it's almost more convenient to take the buses. They have a very good infrastructure there. So most of them took the bus. One guy took his minivan. Anyways, he must have been behind the bus. He sees the bus bus breaks down. He pulls over to the side, and a pile of guys come and say, "Come on, you can't leave us stranded here. You got to take us." He said, "How many people do you think I can fit into my minivan? Like, I can't. I'm not gonna pick. So I'm gonna close my eyes." Whoever gets in, you get in. If you don't get in, I'm not saying who comes, who goes. That, I'm not doing it. Okay, they get in. I don't know how many guys get in. Well, we'll find out how many guys get in. But so many guys packed into that minivan that he had to put the, as we say, the pedal to the metal just to get the minivan rolling. Well, sure enough, whatever it was, a little while later, a cop sees the car is so weighted down that a cop pulls him over, tries looking look in the back to see like what is weighing down this minivan, and he just sees people. So, he goes to the passenger door, opens the door, and they start just rolling out. He counts 15 people. Now, I have a minivan. I couldn't fit 15 children. These are 15 large adults. Anyways, he says, "Come on, this is dangerous. You can't drive like this. I'm going to give you a ticket. We're going to go to court tomorrow. We're going to take care of this he goes, he asks uh, the person taking care of the Rebbe if he get a blessing for him. And the guy says, come on, what are you, crazy? What are you thinking? You know, this is not da- this is dangerous. You can't do this. And anyway, a few days later, he goes to the court case. And the uh, the judge says, 15 people in a minivan? I mean, what were you thinking? So he says, look, I- I'll be honest with you. Um, I wasn't really... I'm thinking about it. I just told him to get in the van. Like, I don't even know if you can get 15 people in a minivan. So the judge says, let's check. And they go outside and they start pulling people off the street and they throw them into the minivan. with pushing and shoving, they get nine guys in. So the judge says, you see that he can't get 15. So if he can't get, if your number is nine, obviously the story is wrong. Case dismissed. So the real question is that, um, and this is what the police officer asked this minivan driver. He says, come on. You and I both know there were 15 guys. How did you manage to get 15 guys into the minivan when, uh, when we could only get nine? It doesn't make sense. So he didn't answer with some miracle answer that God just made the minivan you know, take more people. He said, here's the difference. When you put those nine guys in the minivan, none of them wanted to be there. When no one wants to be there, there isn't room for anybody. While in my case, all these guys wanted to be there. And since all these guys wanted to be there, they made room for each other. So it becomes a fantastic lesson in life. When we make room, there's room for everybody. When we don't want to be somewhere, there isn't room for anyone. But I see my time is about to run out, run out. It's been a great show. You know, I couldn't do it out. All my wonderful sponsors and listeners, and I couldn't do it without anybody. So thank you to my wonderful production team, of course. Uh, only almost all men here today. Cole, Steven, Ethan, Zach. I think Alana's in the back somewhere. I hope I left you some food for thought. Until next week, I'm Rabbi Sweet Jacobson. You've been listening to Let's Talk Torah on NRM Streamcast. And until next week, don't forget to think about it.